The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's a great thing to practice with. So personal, you know, like uh, somebody must be out to get me. Or, you know, I did stupid things, and now I've got this cold, or all the different ways we react. Before we get started tonight, I wanted to just mention, in case you weren't there on Saturday for the first annual Festival of Giving and Receiving, it's really uh, a remarkable day. It's felt a little high for a couple days afterward. Just to be in the middle of so much wholesomeness, it's really remarkable. So many people in the community came together to make it happen. If you don't know about it, Common Ground decided, the leaders here, we decided it was about time that we opened up our attention. You know, for such a long time, we've been quite focused on finding the building, buying the building, renovating the building, and just all the nuts and bolts of moving into the building and learning how to take care of it. But of course, we exist in a much bigger community. And so this was our first <clears throat> formal attempt to open up to the wider community. So we found six organizations that we thought were doing just great work taking care of people locally and then around the world, six charities. And we organized a music benefit. And all the money raised, Common Ground sponsored it. We, all of us, our contributions paid for the expenses or $1,300 for the expenses, so that all the money that was raised then through the food and through the contributions to come is going to be split to these six organizations. So we raised about $10,000, and uh, it just felt really great. The music was wonderful. People like Lucy and Christine organized the food, and Tony and a few other people. Just really great. So if you're interested in getting involved in that next year, let me know. Probably try to make it an annual event and just let it grow organically. It's such a good idea that, you know, organizations such as Common Ground and a lot of restaurants that got contributed to what we did on Saturday makes so much sense that people like us would want to get together and have a beautiful community event that also generates a lot of money that goes to taking care of people. It's just such a good example of the joy of giving. I was happy to donate money to the event. It just made me feel good. And most of you know that's how we operate here at the center. Once a month, usually at the end of the month like tonight, I just remind all of us that Common Ground operates in the same way as that event operated. We don't ask for donations very often. We don't give specific ideas of what a donation should be for programs. And of course, we don't charge for anything. And the idea is to practice receiving the programs as a free gift. That this gift, like of this program tonight, it's arising for us all because of everything everybody did before us, including our spiritual ancestors who did the practice and passed it down and were the recipients of their good practice. And all the people who made this building, put it together, renovated it, all the volunteers, all the people
people who've contributed in the past and supported my livelihood and the livelihood of our paid staff and other teachers. We are the fortunate recipients of all of that. And our job tonight and just generally is to be aware of how good it feels to be given this gift freely, no strings attached. And the only request is that we notice how good it feels that it's offered freely. And then whenever, however you decide to give back, whether you do it here at Common Ground through contributing money or volunteering your time or you get involved and contribute back in other places in the world, that's also a free gift. So the same practice of noticing how good it feels to contribute to support something that's worthy of being supported in all the different ways that make sense in your life. And if you give too much of your time and too much of your money, it won't feel good. But in the same way, if we hold back and don't actively participate in, in supporting things that are worthy of our support in a way that makes sense, it also won't feel good if we hold back. So we have to explore like what really makes us feel good, really makes our life feel worth living. So this is our invitation. Once a month I do this, or if any of you have been around for a year or two, feel like you really understand this principle of generosity, or what we call dana, it's the Pali word for generosity, feel free to connect with me and let me know, and then maybe next month or some month on the road, you can give a five-minute talk on generosity and how it makes sense to you and how you work with it here at Common Ground. It's nice to hear different voices. So especially for you old-timers. Don't be shy. It'd be really nice if you'd like to do that. Let me know. If you have questions about that, you can just see me afterward. There are many ways to give, you know, leaving a donation now or going to the website and signing up for a monthly credit card deduction or talking to your bank and having them send the center a check once a quarter, once a month, every day. You know, you can just find a way that makes sense. So tonight we're going to conclude our uh, discussion about meditation practice. We've been taking the month of September to more formally look at meditation practice and understanding it in terms of our deeper aspirations for our lives. What is this formal thing we do every day for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour? What does that have to do with our wish to be happy or our desire to be free or whatever our deep, deepest aspiration is. And it's, I think it's really important that the formal part of the practice is integrated all the way through. So it's not like, you know, we've got this aspiration to be kind or loving or happy, and we've got this sort of, you know, intention not to harm, and we have this intention to sit every day. We should understand how all of that works together. Basically, the way to say that is, everything we do, it's that old rock song, maybe the police, every breath we take, every step we take, you know, everything should come out of our deepest aspiration, should be connected to our deepest aspiration. Integration in this way, this integrity, is really essential in spiritual life. And in the same way, in the same way that, a, you know, a lack of integrity doesn't make sense. You know, people who can talk the talk, 
to talk about how devoted they are to something like kindness, but then they're stingy or they're, you know, easily irritable and acting that out all the time. Then it's such an obvious disconnect when we look at our life or somebody else's life and we see that they may be aspiring to be good, but they seem to be quite happy justifying behaviors that don't fit that aspiration. The Buddha was really good about um, encouraging us to ask the right questions. So much about this integration is about asking the right questions. He was totally pragmatic, very, um, you know, the way it changed in later traditions, you know, that the tradition expanded as people reflected on what the Buddha taught. But the way the Buddha himself taught, the historic Buddha taught, is very psychologically based. It wasn't metaphysical. He didn't talk a lot about philosophy or about the underlying nature of things. He talked about what it is to have a human mind, how we get into problems, how suffering arises, stress arises with the human mind, and what we can do about it. It was very direct. And it really kind of points to the kind of questions we should be asking. I mean, the first question, of course, is what kind of questions should we, we be asking? Or what's the problem we're trying to solve with this life? You know, what are we trying to get? What are we trying to address with this life, with what we do with this life? And the Buddha, I think, would probably recommend that we address this in the most straightforward way. Well, the thing we're probably most interested in addressing is that our heart hurts. At times, at least, right? We feel entangled, we feel burdened, we feel heavy. And even when we're really happy in life, even though we may not be aware of it, even then when things are going well, on some level, maybe unconscious, we understand that that happiness is vulnerable. It's insecure. It's going to change. It won't always be that way. So that, that weight exists continuously in our lives. The more sensitive we become, the more we're aware of it. You may not like this because it, it can kind of take the shine away when things are going well. You know, we finally get what we want. But because we've been practicing, the mind understands the ephemeralness of that happy state. Knows very well about the inherent vulnerability that comes with being a human being. We don't know what's next. We don't know what's around the next corner. And even when things are going well, we know that things aren't going well for everybody. That takes the shine off of it too, doesn't it? Most of us will go home tonight. We'll have a pretty comfortable place. We'll have food probably that we can eat, a warmth if we need it, safety for to some degree. But it takes the shine off it knowing that there are people right now who are hungry and, and vulnerable to violence and uh, uncertain and lonely. So this is the world we live in. And this sensitivity affects us right now. It's affecting us. And even if we're in denial about other people in difficult straits or our own insecurity, 
the work of denial also hurts. We may not notice it because our patterns of denial and distraction might be quite competent, efficient, you know, but it doesn't mean they're not stressful. This is an interesting point, isn't it, that just because we don't know that we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering. And we see that in other people. You know, it's easier to notice how other people are blind. But that can be useful to suggest to ourselves that maybe we're not seeing also how we're blind. How we're dependent on our delusions, dependent on our distractions, on our being disconnected in our little bubbles. And you know, our bubbles can even include things like, I really care about everybody. And that's why I said my, you know, let's make it substantial, my $1,000 monthly donation to this international organization that feeds people who don't have food or something like that. But that's a little bubble. It's like I don't have to connect with the pain of starving people because I do this. So we have all kinds of strategies to be disconnected from this basic truth that the heart hurts. And the Buddha, the Buddha wouldn't say that's a problem. He would say actually that's an avenue for awakening because it's arising from a more grounded, more direct relationship with things as they are, as opposed to somehow having a strategy of being disconnected or kind of wrapping things up in a tiny little bundle that explains, well, you know, whatever our explanation is, that they have bad karma, you know, the people who don't have food or that people who are lonely or whatever, or, or that maybe uh, God will take care of them in the end, or whatever particular story we might tell ourselves about the difficulty that we and others experience. But the practice, you know, cultivating awareness, we're cultivating a sensitivity that isn't dependent on meaning. We don't need to explain what it is we're sensitive to. We're just learning how to connect, learning how to open, learning how to handle the mystery, the unknowing, the uncertainty of whatever it is we're sensitive to. So that we don't have to close down, we don't have to tell ourselves a story and get attached or identified with the story. We can live in a very direct and raw, open, authentic way. And this is really what the path is about, and it's what our formal meditation is about. First, understanding that the heart hurts, understanding that we want to address that hurt directly. Like we, we're interested in a long-term strategy, not in a short-term strategy that just provides a little distance from the hurt, a little uh, you know, temporary distance that might arise when we have a story or a sort of a distraction of some sort. And instead, we want to take this path into the sensitivity of the heart, into the uneasiness, the vulnerability, the insecurity. It seems dangerous, but actually it's more dangerous to be disconnected. Like, if we lived in a war zone, if we lived in a dangerous place with dangerous animals and dangerous plants, it makes sense to be really sensitized to the world we live in, doesn't it? Not, to, not out of fear, because fear actually can get in the way of sensitivity. 
tightens us up. But not being stupid either, like oblivious to danger. So you could call it being clear. So this is the path the Buddha set up. He said the problem is that human beings, out of you know cultural conditioning, we've been trained in the strategy of disconnecting as a means towards happiness, but not recognizing the long-term implications of that strategy. If our strategy is to stay busy and to be disconnected and to be lost in our stories about things, first of all, our stories can become quite toxic themselves and painful, right? But let's just say our stories are pretty kind of comfortable. I'm doing good enough, you know, I like myself well enough, or whatever. But just needing to maintain stories is a burden. And our stories are always being challenged by reality, by things as they are. So we have to constantly patch them up. One of the things you hear a lot when you first talk to people who are beginning meditation practice it can be actually shocking, surprising. They notice how constant the inner dialogue, the inner commentary is. It's like the mind is talking to itself ceaselessly. And it's shocking. Why is the mind doing that? Why won't it shut up? You know, where is the off button? This is how we feel. I'm sure you felt that way, some of you at least. You know, if you haven't, maybe you haven't noticed how oppressive this ongoing dialogue, inner dialogue, can be. Because what it's doing is this ongoing dialogue, inner commentary, is in a sense patching up our symbolic universe. You know, how we hold or describe what's going on, who I am, who you are, what's right, what's wrong, what's important, what's not important. And we become very dependent on the story, and it's scary if something arises in our life to challenge that story. We go into high gear, don't we? And, you know, or, you know, the, you know, there are different strategies. Some is to sort of immediately confront any challenge and basically try to put it down and defeat it so it doesn't challenge our ideas about things. The other is to immediately incorporate it, you know, to make your enemy part of you. You know, okay, I get, I get what you're saying. You're right, I'm terrible, yeah, yeah. You know, and then we sort of, at least I have a story. You know, I may not be the story I wanted, but I, everything still makes sense. I was just sort of wrong, now I'm bad, I'm no good. But I, I can just, you know, retell myself the story of what's happening now with this new piece. So there are the integrators, and there, there's the defenders, the people, and this includes all of us to some degree, where we can hop. You know, we got this vision, this story, and all of a sudden, it doesn't hold up, given what we're experiencing in the moment. So we hop. And we just have another story. And people even use Dharma this way, Dharma practice, or the teachings of the Buddha this way, where, you know, we mostly live in a very solid world of me and you. But then when that crack breaks down, we just pick up the, the Buddha story. Well, it's all empty. It's all ephemeral. Things come and go. That's just how it is. You know, don't get attached. And it's not like that's a bad story, but stories are always stressful. 
you know, stories are only useful if they point the mind toward a direct understanding or direct experiencing. But as a story, you know, we could get in a big argument about whether the world is ephemeral or not. We could, you know, feel threatened by somebody who thinks the world is more substantial than we think. So no matter how subtle the story might be, if we're defending it, if we feel we need to defend it, if it's synonymous with who we are as an entity, then there's stress involved. There's suffering involved. So the practice is this recognition that the heart hurts, and it's hurting precisely. It gets entangled or weighed down precisely because of the mind's deep habit of identification and attachment. That is the crux of it. This is what insight reveals. Now, even before insight, we have these teachings. You know, we have these concepts that are saying, hey, uh, you know, the Buddha saying from his own practice, hey, I've checked it out. I've really observed carefully my mind, my experience, and I've come to see that at the root of human suffering is attachment and identification. When there is clinging, there is suffering. When there is no clinging, there is no suffering. Honeys, don't forget this. And it's basically what the Buddha said for 45 years, teaching. Look, check that out. Check out what I have, have come to understand and see if it is in fact true for you as well. And if it is, then live according to what you've come to see. That's basically what the Buddha did for 45 years. So when we sit, you know, in our formal meditation, you know, we sit in a comfortable way on a chair on the floor, in a relatively quiet place if we can, with few distractions. We invite the cat to stay in the other room, shut our cell phone off, you know, tell the people we live with not to bother us for 45 minutes or whatever time we have. And then we're practicing this understanding that the heart hurts, the hurting arises because of attachment and identification. When the attachment and identification fall away, the hurt goes away. When the attachment and identification comes, there's hurting. And so we're just observing this. And we create a simple environment externally, you know, quiet place like common ground. But we also create it, we can use a technique where we create a simple environment internally as well, right? So we might. Uh, suggest to the mind with some commitment, some devotion, honey, to make this practice, this reflection easier. Let's simplify the mind. Let's just pay attention to the experience of sitting. Let's just pay attention to the experience of hearing. Let's just pay attention to the experience of breathing in and breathing out. So we're just creating a microcosm of life, of experience, by giving the mind what we call a training ground or an anchor. This is an ancient, ancient and very useful technique. Now, I'm not saying that it isn't also useful to open up the mind, the attention to the full field of experience, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking, right? The six sense gates. We have thinking and the five physical senses. Sometimes that's the best kind of practice to do where we're not choosing a specific training ground or anchor for the attention. 
But initially, because this is a challenging practice, most people find it useful at times at least, if not a good part of the time, to work with a particular anchor like breathing as a metaphor for all of experience. So there we are, just doing our best with real devotion to be aware of the breath as it actually is, and the breath going out as it actually is. And as we get some continuity with that, collecting the energy of the mind around that simple knowing of the breath coming in and the breath going out, then insight becomes relatively easy. And what is insight again? It's noticing when there's any identification or attachment to the breath or to the mind that's knowing the breath, then there's suffering, there's tension. And when the mind that's knowing the breathing process is free of attachment or identification, then there's the flavor of liberation and freedom. A very unique taste. The Buddha talks about Nibbana, the cessation of the agitating forces in the mind. Nibbana is not a place like heaven. Nibbana or Nirvana in Sanskrit is the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion. It's the cessation of attachment in the mind. That's the liberation we're looking for, if you're interested in this path that the Buddha laid out. It is the liberation of a heart free of clinging. No clinging, liberation. Clinging, ordinary life. This life we're living is an ordinary life because clinging is almost always present for us to some degree. Sometimes it's intense and it gets our attention. attention. A lot of the times, our clinging is what we would call, who was it, Freud? Forget now who said sort of our ordinary lives of desperation, you know? We have our ordinary lives of clinging, but it's, we look around, everyone else sort of has that same stress, so we just assume we're doing pretty good. It doesn't occur to us that there's something beyond sort of an ordinary level of clinging. But the more we practice and get interested in the present moment, whether we're using specifically an anchor like the breath, or just generally our lived experience, we get interested in the present moment and start to track when there's clinging, there's suffering. When there's no clinging, there's no suffering. One of the big kind of openings is we realize what freedom is. We, you should assume, unless you've had experience, you should assume you don't really understand yet what freedom is, the freedom of the mind not clinging, the mind free of attachment. I'm not even saying you haven't experienced it. You might have experienced it, but not recognized it. And then said, oh, you know, it must be because of that tea I had. <laughs> you know, or you make up another reason, you know, this person really loves me, and that's why I'm feeling so light. It's not because someone loves you, or you had a, you know, great green tea, or it's a beautiful fall day. The freedom of the heart arises for one reason only. Now, you don't have to believe me, but hopefully what I say is provocative enough to want to make, want to make us check it out. Like when you do feel really light and expansive, full of easy love and clarity, then check it out. Is there any attachment? Is the mind identified with anything? Just see. Or when if you're really tight and heavy and 
life is really difficult, then check it out. Is there attachment, clinging, identification? This is what I mean by tracking. Now, we do this all day long, if we're really interested in this path of practice. But the formal sitting practice is we're uh, increasing the, the depth of insight exponentially by increasing the sensitivity. Right? We find a relatively quiet place. We focus the attention on a relatively narrow range of experience, like the breath, hearing, sensations of sitting, that are relatively neutral. And then we track that there, in that relative, that rarefied environment. We're tracking clinging, suffering, not clinging, non-suffering. We're just tracking it. And the insight deepens more and more and more. It becomes, uh, eventually, slowly, it becomes second nature to the mind. The understanding of dukkha and the end of dukkha. And the Buddha, over and over and over again, said, this is what it's all about. One of the famous stories many of you have heard, but I'll just repeat it quickly. He was walking through a forest with a bunch of monks, maybe nuns and lay people too, I'm not sure. And he grabbed a bunch of leaves and he held them up and he said, what's greater, the leaves in my hand or all the leaves in the forest? And of course they knew, you know, well, there's a lot more leaves in the forest than there are in your hands. The Buddha said, just so. You're right. In the same way, there's many things I could be teaching you. You know, evidently the Buddha had uh, was a very, very intelligent person and also had profound psychic abilities. I don't know that for certain, but that's certainly what the tradition says. I think it's certainly possible, right? So let's just consider that possibility. And just understood a lot about life, about human nature, about reality. As many things as there are leaves in that forest, he understood. But he only taught a few things. And he goes on and he tells his monks or whatever that are there what he teaches. I teach only one thing. Suffering and the end of suffering. Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. Stress and the end of stress. Why? Because that's what's useful. And basically, I don't want you to get distracted by all this other stuff. If you're a human being, you may think all these other things are important, but actually I'm telling you, that's a symptom of delusion, thinking that everything else is important. Because actually there's only one thing that's important. Suffering and the end of suffering. Because one of the problems with not taking up suffering and the end of suffering is we play this postponement game. Well, I'm interested in suffering and the suffering, but first let me get this act, this together. You know, Wynn and I, my wife and I, started a kitchen renovation on Friday. I mean, that's partly why I have a cold. Because our house is in complete disarray. You know, it's, you can imagine how it is. Maybe you went through it yourself. And... Uh, you know, it's like one thing after another. We always think, okay, we'll get, we'll get our act together, we'll get this together. I'm going to diet, I'm going to change my diet, and then I'm going to start exercising most days of the week. You know, and you know what? I haven't been doing as much study as I'd like, and I'm going to put aside an hour every morning to study. And, you know, I used to sit three hours every morning. Now, you know, one to two hours every morning, and I should go back to sitting three hours every morning. And, God, I, you know, I'd really like to spend more time helping my mom out. You know, she has end stage out. You've got all these things that seemingly are really good to do. I mean, I totally think those things are good to do. I like to do those things. But we need to make a choice in life. And the Buddha says, 
the choice is to be less concerned with what you do in terms of getting and getting rid of and more interested in stress and the end of stress no matter what you're doing because you can be tracking stress and the end of stress whether you're helping your mom or going to Valley Fair or doing whatever you're going to do it doesn't really matter but you see it shifts the attention what's really important it gets to the top of the list this life is not about getting our 401ks high it's not about perfecting our relationships with our partners or friends or family it's about learning something about suffering and the end of suffering it makes so much sense that have we I mean maybe some of us have in this room but have we become like with the powerful resolve in the mind you know how the blood brothers you know okay loyalty like are we loyal to this in our life is this really what's most important understanding learning about suffering and the end of suffering in terms of our moment-to-moment -moment experience is this what we're really interested in because if it is then we really shift our energy our focus we would be tracking and we'd be very interested in our sitting practice not to just have some nice tranquility but to track how it is that stress arises how it is that stress ceases like when we start we're there with the breath and then we start doubting we're doing the right thing and then the doubt is a form of attachment right we're identified with the doubting and all of a sudden there's stress it hurts and then does it does it resound in the mind ah oh, this is what the Buddha's talking about you know I've understood something about stress now let's see if I can understand something about the end of stress and if you if you strive too hard you realize you're attached to getting rid of the stress the identification to the doubt and you're stressed out even more ah oh, this is not the way that's an insight you know wanting to get rid of stress and getting more stressed out because of that is a powerful insight to see hating stress is not the way we should take a note you know or maybe you better get a tattoo you can change your tattoo David <laughs> hating stress is not the way you know that would be nice to remember so what's the way well that's a good question to hold because then we're right back into tracking moment to moment well that's fine oh let's try out different ways of relating to the ordinary stress that comes our way especially in the protected environment of sitting meditation you know where it's relatively easy to practice things like radical letting go because you know it's not so dangerous just to sort of relax the mind and body with things that they are because you know this it's only going to last 30 minutes and maybe there's only 15 minutes left so it's not like it's going to kill us but we can experiment to see what does that help does it actually lead to the cessation nibbana that the Buddha was talking about? Is there the flavor of liberation or freedom in allowing things to be? Not being, not the mind not being dependent on meaning, explanations, striving for attainment, striving to get rid of. One of the real important principles in sitting practice. Uh, one is to appreciate the importance of a training ground because it just focuses the mind and 
what uh, what really supports misperception, the not seeing of suffering and the end of suffering, what supports distraction is the absence of samadhi. Samadhi just means non-distraction or the unification of mind. The mind is is engaged, is alive with the present moment. It's not lost in thoughts about the present moment or about things, but it's connecting moment by moment. It's whole in the present moment. So the training ground really helps with that. And then this added piece, which is just to understand that when we're with neutral experience or relatively pleasant experience, like the breath is pretty neutral, then generally what we need to emphasize is the alertness. Because generally when the mind is aware of neutral experience, it tends to be pretty relaxed because it's not charged. You know, if I asked you to recount all the terrible things that ever happened to you, you would expect your mind would get agitated by it, or at least tight to some degree. But if you're being asked just to know this in-breath as it actually is, the touching sensations, and then the out-breath, well, you don't expect that to be very agitating. So the emphasis is, can the mind be relaxed but very alert, interested in that neutral experience? And then when the mind is distracted and probably more agitated because of the distraction, a distraction is just something that arises that's strong and draws the attention to it because of its provocative strength, you know? So that attention, you're knowing this. So you don't need to emphasize the alertness here because the mind is naturally alert with most distractions. That's what we mean by distraction, right? It's what the mind is happy to be alert to. So what we emphasize here is acceptance and relaxation. That's just a simple principle. With your neutral object you're training with, like the breath or sensation or hearing, emphasize being vividly alert, interested, tracking. No breaks in the continuity. When your mind is aware of distraction, emphasize acceptance and relaxation and trusting that it's okay for the distraction. It's not a mistake that this distraction is here. It's just reality arising like this, and it's being known. And that's what relaxation is. It's really letting the distraction flower, because we know if we don't get attached, the flowering leads to the dissolution of the distraction on its own. I don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to get rid of it. It will fall away in its own time, in its own way, if we relax and trust and accept. So I'll just leave it there. It would be nice to hear from people. This is the last night for a while that we'll be talking um, specifically about sitting, formal sitting practice. So any thoughts you'd like to share about your practice with the group or any questions about sitting practice that seem relevant, please bring them up. And say your name if you speak up. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Julian. I was reflecting on the quote I used Thoreau. He writes that most men live lives of quiet desperation. And later in it, he describes his neighbor in the woods, the woodchopper. And he describes this man as cutting wood, carrying water, eating, and sleeping. And he describes him as happy. And then he spends pages criticizing him as a simpleton. And it's so interesting because you know, if I break down my life, it's moment to moment, simple. Sitting, walking down the sidewalk, 
you know, like the woodchopper. But I can see my mind not allowing myself to enjoy it. You know, questioning that how can you be happy walking down the sidewalk? You're simply walking down the sidewalk. You're not really doing anything. But that's basically what the entire day is made of, is these moments. Granted, some may be more important to others, but yeah, it's just, I mean, I really relate to that Western mind that, that clicks into criticism of the simplicity. Yeah, yeah but, but just one thing you said about that story, that some distinction between you and the woodcutter. You can be living a very simple life and be, uh, in some ways, very happy. But that doesn't mean you're out of the woods. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm here. <laughs> because the thing is, if that woodcutter, if things changed, you know, that woodcutter may not have any resources to deal. Like his happiness may be dependent on his simple lifestyle not being interrupted. So there you are, basically having the same kind of life, but you're reflecting on how the mind is creating suffering. You might be much better off because even though you might be thinking, my God, I'm so neurotic, I'm just now I'm just walking, now I'm just eating, and yet I'm creating the stress. But you're aware of how the mind creates stress. And you have some sense that it doesn't have to be. So you're you're on this wisdom path. So the practice isn't just about finding a simple life. It's using the simplicity to do the investigation. Because otherwise, like this is one of the things that's very shocking when you read the teachings of the Buddha, is how much he pushed the monks and nuns. Because, and I think the reason was, that after a while, they got pretty good at just chopping wood, carrying water, basically. You know, they have a very regimented lifestyle. Every morning they get up, as soon as they can see the lines of their fingers, it's time to walk to the nearest village and collect some food that's offered to them by the lay people. They go back, they sit down together, they eat their meal, they wash their bowls, you know, and they walk and they sit and meet once in a while and every once in a while travel to another village and set up camp there. And it's a pretty simple lifestyle versus what lay people have to do. And he would really push them because after a while, with all that sitting and walking meditation practice, they got pretty tranquil, pretty happy, and begin to forget that their happiness is relative to the safety and simplicity of their lifestyle. And there's no telling what's next. Not only what's next in this life, but in the Buddhist cosmological view, you just keep having lifetime after lifetime. So they may have a relatively simple life this time around. Excuse me, no telling what's next for them. So he would inspire them to continue the investigation of dukkha and the end of dukkha, stress and the end of stress. But now because their life is pretty smooth, they're observing this in the very most subtle ways, like being jealous of the monk because his bowl is indented like your bowl, right? We have a Buddhist monk with us tonight. And you know, they live very simply. But you can, you in that simple life, you can get very attached to very simple things. So in that simple environment, you maintain that investigation of wherever the mind is identified, wherever the mind is fixing, getting tight, we recognize, oh, this is dukkha. 
And whenever the mind is not identified, not attached, we recognize this is freedom from dukkha. So you may be doing that investigation, you know, in a way that a simple person might not, who hasn't been inspired to kind of look. It's easy to get complacent, especially people who who have a, a talent for tranquility. And, and just have good fortune, so they don't have a lot of stress in their life, it's really easy to get complacent. In the Buddhist cosmological view, you know, it's like a metaphor, you've got many, many realms of angelic beings, you know, with different characteristics, and they're at a disadvantage, according to the Buddha, because their life is so smooth that they forget the need to do this investigation. And he highlights human existence because it's a nice mix of suffering and ease for most of us, you know. Some of us maybe don't have enough suffering, and others maybe have too much in order to do this practice effectively. But a lot of us have just a nice mix. You know, we do age, we do get sick, we do have breakups and loss, you know, and just the ordinary difficulties of stubbing our toe and seeing dog poop on the sidewalk and things like that that are disturbing, and then we get to work with it. But we have enough ease, too. You know, we get to bed at night, and we've got a few hours where no one's going to disturb us, and enough food, and sometimes we're healthy. So we want to take advantage of the relative uh, balance we have, where we're still sensitive, we understand the vulnerability to suffering, and we can really observe how the mind creates health and how the mind releases hell over and over and over and let that insight deepen until it just becomes second nature to the mind. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Margaret. Yeah, Margaret. Um, this weekend I had a friend in the hospital and I was totally stressed out. And I guess my question is, I understood that I was stressed out, but I could not get out of it. I couldn't not be stressed. I went home, did my sitting thing, practiced, and I was fine. Everything was great. Next day, go back to the hospital, super stressed again. Yeah. So I decided, I'm going to try sitting here, right here by the bedside, and sit down. It's not work. Yeah. What might work is to go home and sit, yeah. gain some clarity and some uh, ease, and then resolve strongly in the mind to continue to track the mind as you go to the hospital. Because it would be very important to see what is the mind doing, what attitude or view is the mind picking up and getting established in, getting identified with? Do you know? Yeah, fear. Yeah. Just fear. So why does the mind do that? What is the, like, does the mind have to do that? Does it have to get established in fear? I don't know. It, yeah. I know I recognize it as fear. Yeah. Well, see, then, the, the, then the, the first moment when that fear arises, and the nice thing about sitting at home is, do whatever you can, Margaret, to get calm and, and feel some freedom. 
And then stop doing that and bring to mind your friend in the hospital, right there at home, when you're feeling safe. So you can observe in that relatively safe environment what the mind does with that image, that memory of the person we love in a difficult time. Like, so then the fear arises. Maybe it's related to like fear of what's going to happen to them, fear of what can happen to any of us. You know, maybe it probably gets universalized or generalized, like or about vulnerability, <coughs> uncertainty. Well, this is exactly what we need to learn how to, what we need to learn to open to, without attachment or identification. Can we relax fully, completely with? the inherent vulnerability, uncertainty in life, without the mind needing to congeal in any way whatsoever. You can practice that at home. So save 10 minutes or so at the end of the sit to bring to mind vulnerability, fear, and practice relating to it in a different way, being undefended with it, not needing to tell yourself a story of it. This body, like the five remembrances, you know, this body is of the nature to grow old. I've not gone beyond aging. It's of the nature to get sick. I've not gone beyond sickness. It's of the nature to die. I've not gone beyond death. Everything that is dear to me, everything that I love, will be taken away, will become other than that, right? We are the heirs of our action. Born out of action, will receive the fruits of our actions. These are the five remembrances or the five reflections the Buddha suggested we go through every day. You can do it formally or you can just do it informally by bringing to mind your friend and just letting that image, that memory generalize to about the very reality of insecurity, vulnerability. And then relate to it with wisdom instead of our old habit energy, which is, I don't like this. I don't want this to be true. I don't want to know about this. I'd rather be ignorant. You know, or in denial. Thanks for sharing that with us. Other thoughts people have? Maybe time for one or two more people. Yeah, Shannon. Oh. Yeah, so, um, the, I don't know exactly, I kind of have an idea of how this might relate to the practice of Inevitability of that, you know, like I'm just like, you know, and I kind of just want it all to happen now, get it out of the way. 
Yeah. But that's, that's like a strategy, and you can see if it works. Like the strategy of, well, so life is doomed. Okay, maybe let it happen. Let's get it over with. But that rushing itself is a lack of acceptance. You know, we don't want life to be as it is. We want to call the shots. We want to control. So that's not allowing for a full vulnerability, a full acceptance. But you don't have to try to change it. Just notice how that itself is stressful. You know, we want everything bad that's going to happen to happen so it can be over with. Well, what's that about? Well, it's just, it's an impatience. You know, we're impatient with the fact that we're going to die. You know? So it's like we don't want to appreciate what's beautiful now. And that, that also is stressful. So this is, the, this is our dilemma. But we'll learn. We'll see that we can't rush it. And that our job is to be intimate with everything. So when beauty is arising, we have to be intimate with that. We really have to let it touch our heart. And when difficulty arises, we have to be intimate with that. We have to let it touch our heart over and over again. And that's really, so that's such a relief, though. Then our practice isn't about the grand strategy that's going to fix it. It's just about letting things be the way that they are, you know, and not needing life, this life, life generally, the cosmos, not needing things to be other than they are. What would be so wrong with having this imperfect life? Can we inhabit it fully, completely, with all of its imperfections, its problems? Be free in it, you know, with it. Mark? Yeah. My name is Kathleen. Um, it, just, it seems to me, though, um, like when you're talking about, uh, you know, more in the formal practice, um, if, if, when things, distractions arise, Related to with some kind of softening because of 
But of course, the whole practice is about that softness. So I, um, I totally agree with you that there has to be that softness. It has to be. Um, it's really the essence of the practice that we have to become intimate with the way things are. What I'm suggesting is that it's true. You can you can keep bringing your attention back to the breath, and that's a very effective strategy initially, especially. And also, it's an effective strategy if you're interested in developing deeper states of tranquility. But ultimately, the practice is not to have to run anywhere. And so we're aware of the breath. And then when a strong distraction arises, we're going to be aware of that. Now, uh, in order to be aware of that distraction, what you're calling kindness and compassion, I'm saying that's what awareness is. Awareness is that love, is that compassion. What is love? Love is just the capacity to connect. That's what love is, right? What's a better definition for love than the power, the capacity to connect, to allow something to be what it is, right? That's the same as mindfulness, or awareness practice. So we're allowing that distraction to be. Now, if in that moment we feel overwhelmed and the mind is, has no choice but to get attached, identified with the distraction, then I think your your instruction is absolutely right, Kathleen, like to come back to something neutral, like the breath, maybe the ticket, just the right thing to do. Because if, we're, if the mind's just going to get attached to the distraction and swept away into mental proliferation, well, that's not going to help anybody. So then it is good to return to the anchor, for example, in that case. But there's a powerful insight, like in Shannon's example, where she felt that frustration and pain. You know, was that frustration and pain continuous? Or were there moments when there wasn't frustration and pain? And wouldn't that be interesting to understand like how there is and now there isn't? That's real insight. Because it strips away the sense that this pain, this frustration is personal. And that's the whole thing, is that we have to see the ebb and flow of feeling, emotion, ideas, and views. We have to see the ebb and flow that it's natural, it's not personal. And it's the stripping away of the, the sense of it's all personal that really reveals a more profound freedom. And that's what we get by tracking it and not trying to control what comes and goes. But just letting wisdom act naturally, like wisdom as a natural force, instead of Mark being the wise one who's going to redirect his attention. Initially, we do that, and that's emphasized, the bringing the attention back to the breath. But ultimately, we want to understand that awareness, wise awareness, can be trusted unconditionally. And it ends up being the only strategy we need to be unconditionally aware, sensitive, relaxed, clear, and letting things unfold from there. And it also means, of course, letting our personality unfold from there. So not even controlling that, what we say, what we do. But we're a few minutes over, so let's leave it here. Just take a breath or two together. Appreciate being in community. May this practice bear good fruit, fruit that supports our well-being, 
fruit that supports the happiness and freedom from suffering for all beings without exception. Thanks again for coming tonight. Thanks to Jerry and Julian and others who set up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.